I'm Maddie Myers. I'm Jason Schreier. And I'm Kirk Hamilton. And it's time. It's time. It's finally time to talk it's about. Time. Here we go. Even more Half-Life 2. All the rest. <laughs> oh, man. Half-Life 2 and the Half-Life stuff. I guess first off, though, this is a bonus episode. And if you're listening to this, that means you're a member. And we appreciate you. We we really do. You're the best. Uh, so thanks so much to everyone listening to this. You, you make it possible for us to make this show. Yeah. Um, Man, I played a lot of Half Life over the last few days. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I through. So, I can like I close my eyes and I see just like the, you see the G Man's <laughs> face, like his yeah. huge and, face and his no, eyes. No, you know what I see? Those ant lions, just constant just ant coming lions at you. you Especially, know, ugh, I was kind of sad I didn't ugh. get to rule an ant lion army in either of the episodes. Mm, mm. That's true. I that's wanted true. to do that again. That was really really cool. Ruling that was over very the antlion fun. army in, in Half Life Two. Yeah, it was one. They didn't really bring that back. I mean, there was a whole antlion thing, I guess. But you didn't. No, get they to don't drive really. In, in general, there aren't a lot of new guns. I don't think there are any new guns. They're like well, new weapons. There's the Magnuson there? device, but um, but we'll we'll no, get into that. Really but count. no, I know. I remember being disappointed by that, though being really psyched about the new enemies, especially in Episode Two. But for starters, for starters, let's rewind, rewind, <laughs> rewinding. I just am curious what the two of you thought of, let's just put the two episodes together. Um, Jason, what did you think of, of episode one and episode two? Yeah, I really enjoyed them. They are so different. Episode one is just like, we got to get out of the city. And it's just kind of like a, mm-hmm. a, a a chasing, like a train movie where you're just like constantly on the move. And it just feels like you're, there's no story, really. It's just a lot of banter between you and Alex. And I really enjoyed that. Actually, I really enjoyed just getting to know Alex and like um, mm-hmm. appreciating her as a character in a way that I never really got to in the first game because she's just kind of in and out a little bit in the first game. And this one, yeah. she's with you the entire time, which I thought was really cool cool just really enjoyed having her hang out um and then episode two um obviously critically acclaimed for lots of reasons um (laughs) there were parts that like i was just like i do not want to do this anymore like the spider part and like the driving a car again after uh people listen (laughs) to the triple play will know that that was my by far my least favorite part of the first game having to go around in a car again was not very pleasant although not as bad, I would say. I agree. As like, I was the curious if you would. They if you improved would think that. the car handling. Yeah. However, it felt like that is a big thing. Yeah. There were some moments that I didn't care for, but go on. Um, I appreciated some of the little tweaks. Uh, playing them all at once, you like really notice all yeah. the changes. Like suddenly, the flashlight is on its own battery yep. instead of mm-hmm. on your your sprint power, which mm-hmm. I thought was really interesting. Just seeing little tweaks like that was really really interesting. Um, and yeah, I dug I dug both of them. Um, it's it's kind of hard to separate them because I played all of these games like in such a short period of time that it's hard to really like be like, oh yeah, this episode was better than the other. But but it just felt like one big journey. And overall, I enjoyed the experience. I would say um, they've aged nice. well. Maddie, how about you? Yeah, I agree. It aged well. I so I also played episode one and two right in a row. And mm-hmm. they really do. are running together for me. And I think <laughs> if I were quizzed on it, I would not be able to tell you where one ended and two began. <laughs> but it's fine. This is not a quiz show. No one's going to ask me that. I will say I liked Half-Life 2 better than Episode 1 and 2, which I did mm. not expect to happen. There are a few things about Half-Life 2 that I was just super impressed by. Like I mentioned the sound design a lot and the music cues. And I just didn't like the music cues as much in the episodes. Mm. I I don't know if you two noticed that, but some of the timing of the action sequence songs and some of the like little bespoke hits felt a lot more, I don't know, corny and, and like expected. Whereas in Half-Life 2, they always felt really subtle and cool. And like, I'm sure that that game was just worked to death in a certain way. Like it feels like a, a jewel in so many respects, whereas the episodes were a little different. And the other thing, the writing of it just felt different. It is written by different people, which we're about to talk about. And yeah, it's true. You get to know Alex a little better. There are just some other tone shifts that happen that aren't bad or good, but were very noticeable to me having like just played Half-Life 2 and then, you know, wait a couple weeks and play these. Like I would say the implied romance between Alex and Gordon, Hmm. not really there in Half-Life 2. In the episodes... It's there. It's still mm-hmm. just an implication, but it's hard to deny it. Like there's a few really specific lines where people talk about the two of you. Mm-hmm. And that is just not like I didn't ship it. And then I was kind of like, oh, I guess 
as I'm supposed to ship it. <laughs> and so it's, I had to kind of, I, I had to kind of like wrestle myself on board for that and be like, okay, this is actually a, a long, slow romance. I did not know that was what this was. Okay, cool. And <laughs> so that was something that I think I just was surprised by. And again, I don't think it's a bad thing. And I am also like, whatever. How many, how many couples cosplayers have I seen in my life cosplaying Alex and Gordon? Why was I surprised? <laughs> I just, I thought they, I thought they were interpreting it as such, as opposed to the game. The, my read on that stuff, which I think is also just kind of awkward and whatever, is just that they're like, people probably have a crush on Alex. So we're just going to like make this because yeah. Gordon's not a character. He's just this like, I know, empty that's avatar. Part of why it's so strange because I'm like, I can't really ship Alex with anyone because Gordon is not a person and we don't really see her interact with anyone else. Well, and that's what makes it feel awkward to me is that it's like, they're not saying that they're saying you love Alex. So like, yeah. wouldn't it be cool if everyone was talking about how you and she should hook up? Like, because Gordon is such a player avatar, which is also awkward, but um, awkward in a, in a different mm-hmm. way. I thought you were going to say because Gordon is such a player. And I was like, really <laughs> interesting. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know that about him, but you find, you know how you find all those journals, all of his little black books of all the, all the people mm-hmm, he's been getting mm-hmm. it on with. Yeah. Right. That, yeah. that right. was some cool lore when you stumbled across. You those. find, yeah, you find his <laughs> Tinder profile. Um, various computers throughout the game. Hey, we just wrote Half-Life Episode 3. So I was definitely struck by the evolution of the series this time playing through all of these. I've played Episode 1 a few times. I've played Half-Life 2 a lot of times, and I never... I've only finished Episode 2 a few times. Did I say Episode 2? I've played Episode 1 a bunch of times. I've played Half-Life 2 a bunch of times, and I've only finished Episode 2. These titles, man. They're not good. Can we just say the titles are not good? Like they should have called it Half-Life Aftermath or whatever they were going to call it. As opposed oh, that to would episode have been, one and right, episode right, two and all right. that. Anyway, it's fine. Given Keep that going. they released them so quickly, you can kind of see that it went 2004, 2006 for episode one, 2007 for episode two. They came out really quickly, despite the fact that I actually really sense a dramatic shift over the course of those three games. Ironically, the whole idea of that was that Half-Life 2 took six years for them to make and Gabe Newell said publicly, like, we're not going to let that happen again. Like, six years is too long. But it's funny, back then, six years seemed like a long time to make a game. Now it's, like, standard. But they were like, it's too long, so we're going to do these episodic chunks as a way to release a new one every year or two. And the idea was, like, to have Episode 3 come out just, like, a year after Episode 2. And, of course, uh, that did not happen. It did not happen. So... I agree, Maddie. I really noticed the different writing, which is which is true. Um, Mark Laidlaw wrote the original Half-Life 2. Episodes 1 and 2 were both written by Chet Falasek and Eric Walpaw, um, who also wrote Portal, incidentally, and they were kind of the like main writing crew at Valve through that period of time. But Laidlaw didn't write it. And they have... They're just more written. I was really struck, especially episode 2. There's just more writing. Like, there's more going on, you know, Eli Vance is taking you aside to talk about backstory and to acknowledge the existence of the G-Man as a character, rather than having him just be this weird, you know, thing that maybe only you see and just appears to you at various points. He is definitely a character that, like, exists and has motivation, which winds up being cool, I think, in the end, and I understand why they made those choices, but definitely by the end of episode two, I was like, wow, like, this is starting to feel more like a modern video game, which is cool in some ways, but also it feels a little less special and a little less distinct now than Half-Life 2. Like, Episode 2 is distinct for me because I think it's, like, one of the best-designed first-person shoot, like, five hours of first-person shooting that exists in video games, just from a, like, encounter design perspective. It's, like, amazing. But narratively, it feels way more mainstream, where Half-Life 2 still feels of that earlier era. Like, it feels more like a turn-of-the-century PC game which I like those games. So I, I like that Half-Life 2 feels that way. It's funny you say that because to me, that's why I enjoyed Half-Life Episode 2 more than mm. the other two in some ways. Um, even though I said they all blend in together, I distinctly remember certain parts of Episode 2 just saying, oh, okay, this feels like a real story. I know where I'm supposed to go and why I'm supposed to go there as opposed to um, the first, the original game where it just feels like you're kind of being just sent around places and you have no idea why. The first one, it feels See, like that's kind what I of like. that, it's like that yeah. chilly tech demo feeling of the first game. And, and I don't mean I don't like episode two. I love episode two. Like I really love all of these well, games I in the story. Well, I hate it. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't hate it. But, I, <laughs> but I, 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 it is different. I it feels lo- very different. They're different and I like them in different ways. 
Yeah. I um, really liked not knowing what was going on in Half-Life 2. Like I mentioned that on our triple yeah, play, just yeah. the fact that you don't know what the teleporter is or why mm -hmm. they're making it and like who even are the Combine exactly. You never really understand them or like what their motivations are. And they're always creepy. And, and there are so many parts of it that you're just like, uh, I guess we're fighting these guys now. And you don't even mm -hmm. have the chance to kind of keep up with how strange the world is. And yeah, episode two... I did understand what was happening a lot more often. And right. That well, that's the thing. Exciting. It just didn't feel like Half-Life 2 had much of a story. Like the story was just no. kind of like you being reasons for you. Like there weren't even reasons for you to just be shepherded from place to place. Um, episode two, I really enjoyed the actual conflict and story and tension they stuck in there. Like Alex is hurt and you have to like protect a bunch of Ortegons so they can heal her. You like, you have to go and, and go get to the white forest to warn them about this upcoming invasion. There's just a lot of stuff in there that was so much more interesting to me personally than any of the stuff, any of the lore in the original game right. uh, or even episode one. It's well executed basic story stuff, right? Like have mm -hmm. a clear objective, insert right. you know, tension and challenge in these ways. It's like it just feels like the writers of that game were like, well, here's how we like put this kind of story structure on it and make it work. And they do really well. I mean, they're, they don't go too far, I don't think. Like, I don't think there's too much defining of the combine, which I really am glad for. Like, there's a little bit more. You learn what an advisor is, basically, and the advisor winds up being this kind of large looming figure over the episodes and then winds up of course being the thing at the end that kills Eli and is like this shocking thing and if you were watching throughout the game the advisor almost functions like the G-man in the episodes where there are a couple of times where you'll see it like it'll fly by or fly away from you because <laughs> it's kind of following you after you first encounter it in episode two and then it shows up at the end to deliver that mm -hmm. stinger well you also kill one that's the most uh, important part of this whole thing well, you injure that one, and then it gets away, and then it comes right, back later. Right, right, You um, injure it. You don't yes. actually kill it. You go it. for it, and then, yes, it wants its revenge. But I'm glad they don't say, you know, the advisors are the whatever, you know, the governing council of the combine. The advisors are super scary. Watch out for those guys right. if you it's see one just of them. Like, oh, right. boy. That's going to have a weird sticky tongue, and it's going to poke your neck in like a bad way. Right. It's a big weird <laughs> slug in a bag. Well, that's what's cool about it. So what's good about it is that it takes what's what works about Half-Life 2, like the lore and the mystery and like leaving a lot of stuff to the imagination, but it gives you just enough to like keep you grounded. Like it it's nice it was nice to know exactly why I was going to each place instead of right. just being told, "All right, Gordon, now you got to go over there because these guys are are here and you have to follow them for some reason." Or yeah, not. it's also cool that they build on the things they developed in Half-Life 2 because remember Half-Life 2 starts and there's like it's like you're dropped in in medias res with characters who were technically at Black Mesa but weren't actually characters in the first Half-Life so it isn't like when Dr. Kleiner is talking to you he's this guy that you remember from the first game because he was like a character model but he wasn't a character where now they've got Judith Mossman doing the like Star Wars thing on the on the screen at the beginning of episode one mm -hmm, and like mm -hmm. leaving this kind of fragmented message and you know who she is and she's kind of this whole character that isn't even really in either of the episodes but you know her from the original from Half-Life 2 I should say not the original but the from right. the first game oh she's the one who betrayed me but then didn't betray but me right, okay, right exactly great. Yeah, she was like a double-double agent. Yeah. Right. That stuff is clever. And, like, you're going to see Kleiner and, and Eli, and you really know them at this point. And it's like, oh, I really can't right. wait to get them. So when you finally get to see, you know, Dr. Kleiner, and he's there with He's got his little um, pet Lamar head crab. Is jumping Lamar, around. And, yeah. yeah. But most importantly, you really get to know Alex. And I don't think Alex, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Kirk, since you played this when it came out, but, like, Alex would not be the character who's as beloved as she is today, if not for the two episodes, just, like, really building her as a character. And letting you get to know her you think i feel like people already thought she was cool even before that they did i don't know i didn't pay attention to half-life discord after it came out discourse yeah. after it came out but but well, like I, I feel like playing it, pretty... it to me it didn't feel like alex mattered until the episodes and like like she was definitely a character in the original game Part of yeah. this, I should say, is it's all blended, blended together. Right, you play them all at once. Well, yes. I, I feel like what's so memorable about her to me, though, is just how unusual a character like that was at the time that Half-Life 2 right. came out. And also at the time that the episodes came out. Like, you've got this, like, Blasian cool chick who is mm -hmm. able to carry her own. Like, she can shoot dudes with, like, infinite ammo and help you out whenever she is around, as opposed to, like... 
you know, dragging you down or just being a voice in your ear or like a secretary character or like a Cortana or like an Anya in the early Gears Mm -hmm. of War games. Like all of these female characters in these other games, action games, were just not presented the way that Alex is, where it's like, yeah, she's not around in Half-Life 2 because she's busy doing other stuff, which like even the fact that that's the case is pretty (laughs) wild. And I feel like I I remembered that as being really cool. It's just being like, oh, there's an action chick in this game, but like that's not the purpose of her character. Like she isn't Mm -hmm. here to just be there for you. And then they build on that by being like, okay, now it's the two of you alone against the world and you're going to hang out and do the last of us thing where you're like climbing around together, but you don't have to protect her the whole time. She can still do her own thing up until she gets stabbed. (laughs) Well, that from a technical perspective is, uh, I imagine pretty revolutionary for that time, having a companion run around. It was, And I remember like talking to people who worked at Irrational Games about modeling Elizabeth as Mm -hmm. being inspired by Alex in the sense that they wanted her to seem just as helpful and cool Mm. and crush worthy as Alex is. (laughs) And and, like there is definitely like a a, like the follower character needs to not be annoying like Ashley in Resident Evil and needs to be cool like like Alex or Elizabeth because otherwise you hate them. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't even go farther than that and say that a lot of the most interesting design in both episode one and episode two, but especially in episode one, uses Alex mechanically to reinforce that idea. Like, I I was really struck by episode one replaying it. I always think of it as the lesser episode because, you know, it kind of is. I mean, when you play episode two, episode two is like much bigger and kind of higher production value and more exciting and has all this really memorable shit that happens. Um, and, and it's it introduces beyond the Hunters, City 17. We'll it's about. not just all set in Exactly. The setting is, is so huge for episode two, just being in that kind of like Alpine whatever setting. But episode one is really good. It, it kind of drags at the one part like a third of the way in when you're just kind of doing zombie stuff. There was a point where I was like, oh, okay. I thought this wasn't going to, I thought we weren't going to do this and we were going to get to the train part, but it kind of, that's the only place where it drags. But I was struck by how at the beginning, you don't have a weapon for so long. I know. um, In both of them, but in episode one, they do this very cool thing where you have to use the flashlight to light up zombies for Alex Mm -hmm. to shoot them. And so Mm -hmm. she's the gun and you're the light. And there's so much stuff like that in these episodes. Every single sequence is sort of designed to be something interesting, to be something a little bit different than just... Okay, now you're in a room and there's some guys coming at you and you have to kill them. And that's why there is kind of some of that in episode one. And that stuff just feels boring because everything else is so interesting. Yeah, I like how much of a puzzle game the episodes still were. I mean, that was Mm -hmm. my favorite part of Half-Life 2. And it was also just the strength of the episodes was the fact that it doesn't just feel like a shooter. You're not just mowing down guy after guy. And even when there are different enemies, the point of it is the puzzle of it all, like figuring Mm -hmm. out how to kill people in certain environments or how to outsmart different situations. And that's fun. And some of that means using Alex and some of it means using the environment or other people around you. It's just neat. I I like that aspect of it. And I feel like Mm -hmm. I don't play that many games that are as much of a environmental puzzle as a shooter Mm -hmm. as this game is. And that's kind of too bad that there aren't more games like that. Yeah, one part... One part that was really memorable to me, I believe it was episode two, is that part where there's like a turret or something or another yes. that's going after you and you have to kind of navigate <laughs> through the cars Crawl, and like yeah. crouch. Yeah. Um, that part was really cool. It yeah, there's some mechanics in, in both episodes that I thought were really interesting. I actually, I expected them both to be a little bit more innovative like I expected some new weapons I expected some new more newness than I got Um, but I was impressed with some of the new stuff that was there like having Alex cover you with a sniper rifle or the most obvious one is taking down all those uh, striders at the end with the the grenade things that I would say is a legitimate new mechanic I think it's interesting that there are no real new mechanics in the game until the Magnuson device at the end which is Mm. just a cool combination of things you could already do throw something with the gravity gun shoot something with your pistol but they kind of go the opposite way where they just go deep into the existing systems that they have and so Mm -hmm. you get stuff like okay well what if we took the flashlight that you already have and you have to use that in a limited battery to illuminate things for Alex to shoot so you're using your flashlight in this completely different way and then you know it keeps going like what if you're right Alex is covering you with one of those those dart like those you know crossbow sniper rifles and you need to clear her shot 
so you have to like she can take kill enemies. the pieces of metal off the roof right. so that she can get in. And so you're like mm-hmm. running around and you need right. to not fall in because there's a bunch right. of zombies in there. So you have to like climb around. Yeah, it's right. it's fun. It's a fun way to think about every environment as being right. a playground. And I dig that. Well, so I think part of that, by the way, Kirk, is that is like from a practical perspective, it's their goal, like I said before, was to release these games a little bit more quickly. And so the way to do that is to take advantage of all the assets and mechanics you've already made and like right. find new ways to use them. There's so this thing about Half-Life as a, as a people will derisively refer to parts of it as, a, as feeling like a tech demo. But I think that like the technical aspect of Half-Life is such a crucial part for why it is the type of game that it is, because this the source engine like Gary's mod is just everything that's in Half-Life as this, you know, big sandbox like playset that you can just play around in so you can get the car and you can get all the different types of combine and you can just set them up like little toys and and have them do stuff because it's a very easy toolkit to work with and Valve clearly designed it to be that with the goal of making these games really quickly and it's so cool to play a game where I really understand all the possibilities of the source engine. Like so much of the physics stuff is just, oh yeah, I'm like, oh yeah, right. Okay, there's that metal thing. I know I can pick that up with the gravity gun. They, it's over the roof. So if I knock that out, then she'll be able to see. I know that gun she's using. Could, like I know all the rules of the universe and they're so smart about arranging situations for me to have to navigate them in interesting ways and problem solve my way through them and i just don't feel like i see that in other games where i'm like Mm. i'm made so aware of all of the possibilities of the game engine of the technology that is happening and then the game like uses that knowledge to to challenge me rather than it just being like oh this is just supposed to be like real life you're in a room a guy's shooting at you you know get behind the wall like it's it's there's a different layer on it with half-life where i'm thinking well i'm in the source engine so like what is possible here yeah yeah, that's an interesting way to think about I it. I mean, Portal is another example of exactly what you're talking right, about. Right. It's kind of a brilliant, brilliant way. Yeah, but they put the goo in Portal 2, and there's no equivalent of the goo in this game where you can like mm. suddenly slide around or go mm-hmm. to the moon or anything. There isn't like some huge elevating aspect. Right, mm. that you could argue that there's some elegance that, in that. I was thinking, this conversation got me thinking about the canceled Half-Life 2 Episode 3s that we've heard about over the years. One of them was going to be by Arcane. Another one was going to be by Junction Point mm-hmm. War Inspector Studio, um, aka the makers of Epic Mickey. And I think both of those were supposed to be set in Ravenholm, and you were supposed to get something called the magnet gun that would let you like magnetize metal surfaces and use that to solve puzzles and like attract enemies and stuff. And I was thinking about how interesting it would be, and I wonder how that would have worked, if it would have worked, if it would have been successful to see um, a new episode that just added a totally new like gun that yeah. was like the gravity gun, but just totally different. It's interesting to think about a non, like, kind of on that that source engine tip to think about a non-Valve studio making a Half-Life game, where, like, Titanfall 2 is a good example of a game that feels very much like a Valve game and is actually made in Source Engine, but is not... Like, it doesn't have that same feeling of, okay, I understand this engine, there's all this, like, destructible physics, there's all these things that can happen, so let's see what's going to happen in this room. It's way more of just a really well-designed first-person shooter, like a really good Call of Duty game, which um, I... The section you talked about, Jason, with the auto cannon, where you're crawling through the ditches and under the cars trying to get around mm-hmm. to turn this cannon off, made me think of Call of Duty. Like, it feels mm. like a yeah. set trenches, piece in Call of trench Duty. warfare. Right, mm-hmm. and you're getting shot and you're crawling through it. But it feels different because of that source engine knowledge, where I know mm. I know all these cars. I've seen these cars before. I know what all the zombies are going to do when they're crawling because their legs have been blown off, like how fast they move, what it means to hear one over there. And it's like it's it's hard to even articulate how interesting that is or like how distinct that is, that feeling of like just the knowledge of the technology underpinning the game, informing how it feels to play it. Yeah. And also, you know what you can and can't step on. I feel like that is another good difference from Half-Life 2 is that in this game, there were fewer Mm. moments when I was like, I'm jumping on this and I guess it's where I'm supposed to go. But uh, I don't really (laughs) know. I feel like the technology Mm -hmm. came a little further here where it's always more clear where you're supposed to go. And like in the car maze, for example, or um, in the under the radar chapter where you're like hunting Mm -hmm. around or you stop somewhere and you're like, oh, I guess there's going to be a supply cache somewhere here. It's much easier to figure out where those are because 
because you can just look around and be like, oh, that's a weird rock or like, mm-hmm. oh, that, why is that car there? That's interesting. What's that? What's that balancing there? I'm going to blow it up and see what happens. And it, it does feel, again, like a puzzle playground that is much easier to navigate than Half-Life 2 Right, was. it's more polished in that way. Like Half-Life 2, it has it's that same kind of old PC game energy where there are just times where you're in a weird gray room and you're not really sure where to go. Where in Episode mm-hmm. 2, it is much more like, okay, this just feels like... You know, it's kind of a lot of things that people stole from Valve, but all of these tricks of like having a light on a thing or having something look weird. Yeah, so you know and like having the road look really specific. Like that mm-hmm. was one of the things about the driving that made it easier for me was that it was a lot more obvious where to go this yes. time around. Mm-hmm. Like there were so many times in Half-Life 2, okay, it's great that Gabe Newell didn't want to give me a map. I understand it. Yeah. It's like this whole thing, no real, no maps, whatever. But <laughs> I never knew where I was going in that freaking game. Yeah. And I was constantly getting I'm lost. I'm glad that you give credit to Gabe you know, I, I'm sure it wasn't his idea yes. but like come on whatever I don't know he seems he, he doesn't want to direct his employees and he doesn't want to direct me Gabe <laughs> call me anyway uh, there's no map and there's no map in episodes one and two but I didn't get lost for whatever reason like the signposting oh, yeah. must have just been better because the few times I did get turned around I'd be like oh I got turned around this doesn't look Right. Or I was just here. This is visually distinct. And I know that because I was just here and I just saw mm-hmm. this as right. opposed mm-hmm. to the classic video game problem of getting turned around, walking for like 20 minutes and then being like, is this where I already what This looks identical. What? I mean, yeah, that what? happened to me. <laughs> There's this part of Half-Life 2 near the end when you're on the roof and you've just fought like two helicopters, I think. And you're supposed to go to the horse. It's like there's like a horse statue. Yes. Did either of you oh see this? And then God. the guys yes. are like, the NPCs start saying to you, go to the horse statue. And I it's was like, crazy. What? And then I looked yeah, over and I was like, Yeah, they're like, go to the horse. And the I, was horse. Like, I don't know how to get to the horse. Mr. Freeman, the horse. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck? Am I supposed to ride a horse? This, this video game. But man. even the statue is hard to get to. <laughs> and it's just, it is a classic example of like, they were like, People don't. I'm sure we're playtesting it, and they're like, people don't know where they're supposed to go, and it, it was like a pretty kludgy <laughs> fix. Where it, episode two never has that feeling. Like there's it's no always go to very the horse cr- episode moment. one as well. No, there's no go to the horse <laughs> moment exactly. Um, God, I want to talk a little that. about the new enemies because there are new enemies, and I think the zombine, which is the zombie combine in episode one, those are cool. Like they they make those zombie sections feel scarier because it takes so many more shots to bring down, but. The hunters amaze me, at least just just speaking personally, they're like the most amazing addition to the game because every fight in episode two where the hunters turn up and these are for anyone who hasn't played this game in a long time or something, they're the big kind of mini striders or these tripods. They make a really cool new sound. They are terrifying. They're the thing that actually impales Alex and leaves her almost dying. So they're kind of introduced in this really terrifying way where they attack you out of nowhere. And they're so cool. Like I, I can't think of another new enemy that's been introduced to a game that completely overhauls the feeling of fighting like i i was having so much fun in the second half of episode two just in those like you know there's like each encounter feels really distinct the radio tower there's the part where you're in that big house and then the combine shows up outside and they begin like coming in through the windows and you're running through this crazy house and then hunters like start coming in i was like fighting Mm -hmm. one down the stairs and it's like advancing on me down the stairs because they're really hard to kill and i was like laughing my ass off just being like this rules like this is such a good fight we're whatever 14 years after this game came out and it's very rare for a first person shooter to push me around that much and it's totally because they introduced those enemies so i don't know what did you what did you two think of the hunters were you as into them as i was i was into them for sure i feel like part of that is just their stagger animations are so weird and creepy and they do this thing where they'll almost lean over you like i can picture it coming down the stairs towards Mm -hmm. me because they'll kind of lean and then sometimes they'll be like shooting at somebody else and then like you'll shoot at them and then they have this like turn around really quick and look at you moment where they're like or whatever and and you're like okay it's cool. There's just something about that combat animation they have that makes them feel mm-hmm. scarier. And yeah, I really liked using the double barrel shotgun attack on those guys. It was super mm-hmm. satisfying. The mm-hmm. right click shotgun, just four of those and they're dead. It's perfect. Yeah, or the the rocket launcher was a good one. Oh, to well, use obviously. Once you get um, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember when you first had to fight one. I thought it was going to be like a cutscene where you're supposed to get killed or something because of what had happened in the beginning of the game, where Alex gets stabbed mm. by one of them. So mm-hmm. I remember when it popped out, and it was like, oh, we're gonna have to fight these now. Oh, well, 
Oh, okay. Hello. Oh. There. <laughs> oh, hello. Um, yeah. Yeah, they're fun enemies for sure. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I wasn't as like blown away as you, Kirk. I suppose because they just looked to me like mini striders. So I wasn't like, oh man, this is a cool, new, amazing new thing. They yeah. just kind of look like the other aliens. I just really get into how they affect the flow of combat because you get pretty used to fighting the combine mm. soldiers in the main game, who do come in a few different varieties. But just adding that like bully type enemy that can just take a ton of damage. Yeah, you have to be on the move a lot more. And push you, you around, right. Like... It just And the levels are so well designed for it. They start in these kind of open areas where you can like circle buildings and get it to chase you. But by the end, when you're down in that like the, the rocket facility and you're like up close with them and they're chasing you around. And then, I don't know if the two of you figured this out, but I, in that final fight, the final fight against all the striders, if you, mm-hmm. it's so hard. I remember the first time I did that. It was like the most stressful and ultimately satisfying fight I'd like ever done in a video game. This time around, I kind of kicked its ass because once you figure out that you can just drive them down with your car and it just yeah, kills them, can. it kind of oh, makes the whole thing. Oh, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, so you probably had a harder time in that fight, which is a fun, a valid way to do it. No, but. I actually found. I was gonna say uh, one of the reasons that I wasn't super impressed with the hunters is that I found Half Life Two Episode Two very easy as a whole. Oh, interesting. Um, I found it much easier than the base game where mm. I like actually struggled on a couple of parts. This game I found very now, easy. Now, could this be because you now are able to sprint and you weren't, you didn't know how to sprint in the, <laughs> yes, in the base Yes, it game. could be that. that it could, could be, be that. I, yeah, Although, I, I actually think, I think health upgrades are just a lot more prevalent in this one. Like, usually, yeah. the house you mentioned, for example, yeah. the, ho- the house you mentioned, there, mm-hmm. it's just like health on every corner. Like, everywhere. you go to the basement and there's just health everywhere. As opposed to the first game where it felt like a lot of times I had a save file where I was at, like, 10 health and so I couldn't do anything. I had to, like, meticulously, like, inch by inch crawl through enemies and not get hit or else I would be restoring an old save. In this mm-hmm. game, I never had that moment. Um I don't know if if one of those if I prefer one of those approaches over the other. They're just mm-hmm. different. Um, yeah. But I actually found that I did that Strider thing the legit way with every single Strider I out. killed with a with mm-hmm. a with a grenade thing. Um, and yeah, I found it the perfect balance. Oh, sorry. To be clear, you can't kill the Striders with your car. Like you can yeah. kill the oh the, the hunters the hunters you with your, your car. Yeah, because oh, if you get out okay. to shoot at them, it takes forever, and then the Striders got just it. roll past you and blow stuff up. The no, Striders, so you got to do the thing. Yeah, you yeah. Got, so that's I actually yeah. I used all of my ammo and I had to be like yes. running around frantically trying to get ammo and Which stuff is, like that. But fun <laughs> like yeah. that's a fun it way to play be, yeah. it yeah no it was fun i really enjoyed that final sequence but i didn't find it like i only had to play it one like i beat it on the first time mm-hmm. i didn't have to play through it multiple times or anything like yeah. that so i didn't find it super challenging um i did find that like uh when they got to the base they gave you enough time that you could just go back right. to the base and take them out so you weren't really that worried about them like conquering right where this time i like they never even, i think i got the base warning once right before i killed one they didn't even get close well if you were if you were running over all this <laughs> it made so i started playing it the other way where i'd jump out of the car and i was like using all my magnum ammo and killing the killing uh-huh, the hunters uh-huh. and then finally getting the thing and then i was like god i'm really running low on ammo this is gonna get hard and then i was like wait a minute i think i can kill these with my car because i just remember that i do remember the first time i played it the feeling of near the end where there's like three or four of the striders coming and there's so many hunters everywhere being like i am down to like the crowbar and like <laughs> like one thing like just trying you know, like three bullets trying to kill a hunter and it being a very frantic but but very exciting fight so i did die and then uh beat it on the second try that final strider boss fight but if you two didn't die then you didn't get to see the extremely funny death screen that happens if you die and you what let it? them get what to does the it base. say no, what is it it says something like what's the name of just the asshole scientist whose bombs Magnuson. you're using Magnuson. Magnuson. Dr. Magnus, the I'm going to misremember it, but it says something like, you have failed. Magnuson was right to not trust Gordon Freeman. (laughs) That's That's so funny. And it's hilarious. Like, it's like he was right to have doubts about you and think you couldn't do this because you couldn't. And I was like, okay, that's really funny. Really funny. Like that he happens has if been you die or if time. they blow up the base. Um, if they get to the base, because he keeps the saying okay. the whole time where he's like, sure. "I don't really see what's so special about you, TBH. Right. Like, I don't really like you, and I don't think you uh-huh. can do this. And I'm uh-huh. worried about my rocket. So whatever. And it's very snarky. I actually, and I really enjoy. It's I guess it's not technically negging, but I really enjoy how Magnuson is always kind of dissing you, just because the sequence with the Vortigaunt where you're going and like going through the antlion, like trying to get yes. the thing to and heal. Yes, the Vortigaunt is like oh he just keeps me like 
God, I'm you're freaking cool. obsessed with you. You're God. I Look, I did you, these Freeman. drawings of you. Can you? What do you think? Like it's so like he's just so constantly. I, I sewed a tapestry by hand. And then yeah, meanwhile, it's... the Vortigaun himself is like all powerful. Right. Uh, the well, Vortigaun is what he should be worshipped. And yeah. I think that that's totally meant as a joke that the Vortigaunts are like this all powerful, you know, species of of amazing like space gods, and that your guy is this like kind of not talking yeah. dork. I guess, and but like you're also pretty freaking amazing. Like you're like what, true. a PhD candidate and you somehow figured out how to like blow up a trillion dudes per second? <laughs> like what is sure. up with Gordon Freeman? Like it doesn't make any yeah. sense. He's a physicist yeah. and he's like really good with a lot of different kinds of guns. <laughs> I guess when I say it's a joke, I mean that like they're making a joke about that. Like about the right. fact that right. you are this. I'm not sure they are. I mean, I, I would like to give them the credit, but like I really don't know. Oh, because the era that this game came out was also a period of time mm-hmm. where playing as a super cool badass guy was not at all unusual. So I don't mm-hmm. really know if the joke is supposed to be on the player at any point in these games. I think it's supposed to be kind of arch. Like I think that the Vortigaunt, the constant Vortigaunt praise is meant to be just slightly, not not like the joke is on you and they're making fun of themselves, but just that it is deliberately like ridiculous how he's constantly praising you and being like, wow, you're so great. Even though he's also making you feel good because like you just did something cool or solved a puzzle and he's like good job you solved the puzzle <laughs> yeah i mean it is funny when he compliments you for like being good at climbing and vents and stuff like right. there are points where you're like really i'm getting a compliment well, for this? some it's of like, those jokes maybe he are... just sees me as a toddler like i he's like oh good job freeman you got onto the crate i love that for you like i i don't know he he may have been mocking Some me. of those lines, like there are totally meta jokes where, where Alex is like, I've heard about you and Vince, you know, stuff like yeah. that. I mean, these are, they're talking about the series and how like you're always going into Vince and Half-Life games. Like that is yeah. very much a meta joke. That's part of why though, I feel like the writing stands out to me more because it just, it feels more jokey. I mean, I guess it's more because mm-hmm. it's the portal writers. So it has yeah. a more tongue in cheek vibe. Like the idea that Alex even does the zombine portmanteau and then kind of looks right. at the camera and is like, we won't call them that wink (laughs) and of course like you know for the rest of the game that's what you the player are going to be mentally Uh referring to them as like it's very wiki will call them that yeah yeah looking directly into the player's eyes and saying this is what this enemy type is called get it Mm -hmm. i i don't know it feels more video gamey in just every sense of it it's more designed like a video game you know how I mentioned before how I knew exactly what you were supposed to be doing and like where you're supposed to be going, et cetera, et cetera, in episode two. One were thing I still don't know. One thing I still don't know is why there was a rocket and what the Borealis is and any of that stuff they were talking about towards the end of the game. No, no clue what they well, were the talking Borealis about. The Borealis was just teased. But yeah, so let's talk yes. about the ending. Um, the rocket is trying to get a broadcast to atmosphere that can counter the like whatever broadcast or frequency or dimensional magic, whatever the combine is using to open that hole because the combine is trying to open the portal back up, which was initially how they were going through the, the Citadel to invade the world. And they want to open this huge portal so their massive army can come through. And it can be the seven hour war, which they always refer to, I think is a, a wonderful bit of writing. The seven yeah. hour war, just because like it says it all right there. And like mm-hmm. it's going to be, like Alex says at one point, this will be the seven hour war all over again. If they get that thing open, it's over. Like it's like millions yeah. of them just come through and we're lost. I think Eli or some other characters like more like seven minutes. Like they really explain right. to you how bad it's going to be if this if this portal opens. Right. But you don't, I didn't really understand why the data that Alex stole is what they are able to use to counteract it. I think exactly. they reverse engineer it in order. Somehow, to, I think it's like a frequency yeah. code that they can reverse it. it but it's a little it's bit. It's a MacGuffin. Right. It's basically right. just Alex's little USB drive that she's carrying on her hip for right. the entire game. She gives it to what Steiner. Is that his name? And then he, Plugs oh, it into his laptop, yeah. Kleiner, and then he's like, okay, cool, I got this. I just took everything and I put a negative sign right. in front of it, and we just shoot that in his face, and right. then that's going to stop the portal. It really is. I mean, it really is the Battle of Endor. Like, it feels like the Battle of Endor. It's just <laughs> mm-hmm. like we're down on this, like, green area, and up in space there's this thing, and we have, like, the thing that could stop it. And what really matters is that it's it's that kind of a double-scale fight. Mm-hmm. But it's a little vague, and the Borealis is totally just... A tease. I was actually really struck by that because, like I said, I, I've only finished episode two once or maybe twice, like right around when it came out. And um, I was like, whoa, they, they really 
talk about the Borealis and like show the Aperture Labs thing and like Dr. Kleiner talks about Aperture and like it's explicitly linked. Um, you know, the two things are explicitly linked that Portal and Half-Life exist in the same world and this is absolutely setting up episode three in this we are going to make episode three kind of a way. Um, I mm-hmm. just for some reason remembered it being more vague than that. But I think it's meant to be kind of ambiguous, probably because they were still writing episode three and weren't even totally sure. Like they didn't want to overly commit to anything, but also just to keep it mysterious, I think. Yeah, I think so. It's it's also very like MCU to be like, and now Portal is entering the fray and there's like right, going to be a post-credit right. scene where Shell wakes up and looks in the mirror. That doesn't happen. But yeah. it, it does. <laughs> I am sure it was very exciting at the time for people to see Aperture Science in there and speculate yeah, about but the it. Borealis that's is that that's never mentioned in Portal is it the Borealis no but the aperture science aspect no of obviously it. aperture and yeah. then so and then there's this warning like Eli gives you at the end of the well yes, that the G-man like, gives no, you and Eli shouldn't. is like oh no we can't do this and right it's just kind of yeah it's it's set up for something that just never happened which is kind of wild bing Kirk from the future here just wanted to chime in and say even when we said that the Borealis didn't appear anywhere in Portal I was like you know, this is one of those things where you say a negative on a podcast and then it turns out that there's some little exception that you didn't remember. And that is true. In Portal 2, you visit the dry dock for the Borealis. So you see the ship's name in a couple of places in Portal 2. So they did keep that connection going into Portal 2, not something that any of us remembered. So yeah, I just wanted to mention that because uh, there really are all these little links between those two series. Okay, back to the show. Bing! The Aperture thing is interesting because I think part of it is that I played this for the first time before I played Portal. And I think a lot of people who played it when it came out, like Portal didn't quite become a super phenomenon for a little while. And it wasn't until like, you know, Portal 2 that it was really like, oh, Aperture Labs is this whole thing because Portal 2 goes into the whole history of Aperture Labs. And, you know, it was this this way bigger sort of backstory thing. So playing it now and seeing Aperture Labs feels very different than it felt when it came out. When it came out, I don't think I even clocked Aperture at all because I didn't even know what it was because I hadn't even played Portal. And even if I had, I would have been like, oh, funny. They like tied it into that little mini game they made or something. Like Portal had not yet become its own whole cinematic universe that was, like it's much more meaningful now to consider that the two exist in the same in the same world. And I guess in Half-Life Alex, which is recent, there is, I don't believe, there may be like an Easter egg, but there's no mention of Aperture or anything there. So... It might be that I don't know, like how much they're really gonna gonna do with the with Aperture uh, Black Mesa crossover stuff in the future. Yeah, I mean, I don't know when we're gonna talk about the Epistle Three uh, entry, but so let's let's do it. Let's get into it. So the game ends. Eli gets killed. It's a crazy ending. It's so crazy yeah. that it ended and then for thirteen years. It's so sad. She's just like sobbing over her dead father, and then the credits. And that's, the, roll. that's the credits. Is her sobbing? Unbelievable. Like, oh, she's okay. like, "Don't leave me." Like I was like, "Wow!" Like, and then there's no Half Life game for thirteen years, which is nuts. But in the interim. Mark Laidlaw releases, he leaves Valve, and quite a while afterward, he puts out this thing, this blog post called Epistle 3, that is extremely cute and cutesy, like the way that it's structured, and I just reread it, we'll link it in show notes, totally worth reading if you've played these games. The whole thing, it gender swaps and changes the names of all of the characters, so like um, Ellie, Ellie Vaunt becomes, you know, the mother of Alex, who is Alex Vance, but is now male the Alex, and Ellie Vaunt Ellie. is the mother, so yes. everyone just kind of gets flipped, and like Mr. X is Fremont? the G-man. Mm-hmm. Your yeah, Gertrude. Gertie, and so Gertie it's, it's like very obviously coded and you can just read it. And it's the basically the story or at least a version of, ep- of episode three that could have happened. And it's pretty cool. Let me recap it really quick for anyone who hasn't read it. Let me know how I do here. It's basically they, they get on the helicopter. So Eli did die. They get on the helicopter. They go north. They discover the Borealis, but it's not really there. There's this whole like kind of weird research facility, which I'm assuming is maybe an aperture facility in the Arctic, and then they get captured by the Combine. There's like a whole thing where like Dr. Breen is still alive, but he's an alien now. He's a grub guy. In a slug. Yeah, Yeah. in a kind of advisor suit, and you kill him. And then it turns out the Borealis is like there and not there, and there's this whole like portal thing going on, which makes sense given aperture, and it's kind of been like unstuck in time and space. So it's warping back and forth between an area in Lake Huron and the Antarctica and in the Antarctic where you are. 
And then it's also unstuck in time. So it's like currently in the past, but it's coming to the present. And the coordinates were actually like coordinates for a time and place where it would be, not just a place. And there's a whole thing. You meet up with Judith Mossman. And there's this ongoing debate about like, do we use this technology in the fight against the Combine? Or do we destroy it? And in the end, Mossman wants to use it. Alex is like, my father's dying wish was not to use it. And she kills Mossman. And you wind up being like, okay, we're going to take this thing and turn it into this like weapon and launch it at the Combine Command Center. They do that. But it's a suicide mission. It's a suicide yeah. mission. And it's I, you can imagine this, right? If you've played a lot of Half-Life 2, like yep. you're on the, she looks at you and is like, I guess this is it, Gordon. And then of course the G-Man walks in, time stops, and he takes Alex and is like, basically is like, you need to come with me. Like we're leaving. And she's like, okay. And they go through one of their little doors and just and vanish and you're you. left alone. Yeah. <laughs> and then they impl- he implies at the end of this that it kind of, the ship comes out and you, you realize the total futility of this action, that the Combine are, like, so huge. He says you come upon a Dyson Sphere, which, you know, is like, if you've watched your Star Trek, it's like a huge metal structure built around a star to harness its energy. Like, it's like, the Combine is so powerful, you'll never do anything. And then right before your futile gesture kills you, the Vortigons show up and whisk you away. And presumably that sets up the next episode or something. Mm-hmm. So... Personally speaking, I can just completely imagine this as being a game, and I wish I could have played it, because I think it would have been pretty good. Yeah. Um, so I want to note that like everybody assumed that that was the plan for Half-Life Episode 3, and then it never happened for whatever reason. But um, in an interview later, um, Robin Walker, who's a designer at Valve, longtime designer at yeah, Valve, yeah. told Nathan Grayson, our former colleague at Kotaku, that he read that and was like, oh, I don't remember this being our plan for Half-Life 3 at all. Mm. And he just thought it was like something Mark just like had had written and came up with just like one right. potential idea. So mm-hmm. there are any number of ways that have, I think, which gone. is like, what is any unpublished story, right? Like exactly. It, it, right. It's, exactly. It's, we can only imagine it as a possible future a that possible, never came to be possible future, but yes. it would have been a cool, pretty cool game. It like, I, could, I could mm-hmm. imagine it as a game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting uh, that half-life three just never happened. Episode three just never happened. It's part of like a long running joke that valve can't make games with three in right. them. Cause it just stops every, Every series at two. <laughs> That's true. Yep. Left for Dead as well. Huh? Um, and it just became it became the ultimate piece of vaporware. And now clearly it's not going to happen. But but uh, there okay. might be new Half Life in the future. Kirk, yes. Take us. So away. now we're going to talk about Half Life, Alex. And I want to offer a spoiler warning here inside the Beans Cast, only because <laughs> I know there are people who like don't have a VR rig but would like to play Half Life, Alex, mm-hmm. at some point. So this is like Beans Cast Half Life colon episode one. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Like beans cast half life episodes. Alex, colon after beans cast the beans. So like there's little beans within the beans. Anyways, yep. um we're gonna pretty much just talk about Half Life Alex and like the implications of the ending of that game for the rest of this beans cast. So you can probably just check out if you wanna play that at some point and don't wanna know what happens because the ending of this of that game is like a big deal and really, really cool to see on the spoiler, at least it was for me. So that's your warning. Okay, let's talk about Half Life Alex. So the two of you didn't play this game for various reasons. I did play it, played it unspoiled. Pretty much the same reason, but yeah, VR makes us both nauseous. For a reason. We we didn't want to throw up. <laughs> oh, I didn't know it made you nauseous, Jason. But um but okay. So yeah. you both didn't play it because of VR. Totally understand. And we never will. It's very yeah. sad because it looks cool as heck, it's according to the cutscene you sent us. Um, it's an amazing game, and what's really remarkable about it, which I've said before on podcasts, is that it is a Half-Life game. It feels like the games you just played, that same kind of rhythm, that same uh, sort of technology system stuff, that same feeling of like being pushed and prodded, but in ways that are fun and make you feel smart and engaged. But in VR, like it's just the same people kind of design ethos underlying this 17 hour VR game that's like just as long as Half-Life 2. Like it's, you do the whole thing, you get all these cool weapons, you you fight against antlions, you meet a Vortigaunt who's really cool, you have like a fun friend on the radio with you played by, a, what's his name from Flight of the Concords, their manager, Murray, and he's really funny. It totally stays in terms of the writing in in that kind of vein of where it's like still funny, there's a lot of sort of cutting the tension with jokes. Alex is very, very funny character throughout. It's a scary as hell game. Like I've mentioned, it's a horror game. So there's a lot more sequences where Alex will kind of be on the radio and she'll be like, hey, can you just like tell me a story about what Earth used to be like? Because I'm really freaked out right now. And then you kind of have a fun conversation while you're literally moving through a terrifying environment. So 
it's a cool game. It's a Half-Life game. It's kind of amazing that it exists. The narrative of this game is that the whole time you're trying to get to this prison. And it's this prison complex where you're going to rescue this person who is like very valuable to the Combine that's going to help you overthrow them. And it's assumed that it's Gordon Freeman. Though, if you've played Half-Life 2, you know that Gordon Freeman kind of gets pulled by the G-Man onto a train. So it's like, well, he didn't get broken out of a prison. So, hmm. But I didn't think about that that much and actually didn't really think about who it might be. But of course, as you get closer and closer, it is revealed that it is, in fact, the G-Man, who is the prisoner. And the Combine and the G-Man are not the same at all. The G-Man is like something completely else. Um, aside from them, and kind of much bigger and more powerful than them. So, you finally get into the prison. There's this amazing final level where you go through um, this house. You can watch all this on YouTube, by the way. We'll link it in the show notes, and you can see what happens. It's not the same as in VR, but you can see it. This really cool house where, like, gravity and time and space are all messed up, and finally, you reach him. And he is, like, gives you a typical G-Man speech, but he's it's in VR, so he's, like, all around you and duplicating himself. It's so freaking cool. He, like, appears behind you at times and is, like... And he talks to Alex basically about this whole thing that comes up at the end of episode two as well, about how when she was a child at Black Mesa, he, like, interceded in her life, basically, and it was known, because he exists outside... He's, like, a Time Lord. He's kind of a Time Lord. The G-Man is kind of Doctor Who. He exists outside of space and time. And he was like, she is super important. She is going to play this crucial role. I'm here. Like, I've always had my eye on you because when even when you were a child, like, I argued against my employers and others. Like, it's all very vague to keep you alive because I knew how important you were. And then he says, if there was something I could do for you, like a nudge, I could tweak things maybe. What, what, what would that look like? And Alex is like, take the combine off of Earth. And he's like, that's a pretty big nudge. Can't do that. Too big, like too many things in motion to do that. And then he's like, what if I fix something for you that you don't know about yet? Because remember, Alex <laughs> in Half-Life, Alex is 19 years old. And this is when I begin screaming. I imagine you just shooting yourself, yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm in the room and I'm like, ah. Because I'm, <laughs> I'm assuming that the end of this game is going to in some way deal with the cliffhanger, but I don't know how. And so then, of course. That was one of your 2020 predictions. It was. Fact. Oh, that's right. And I'm also thinking, yes, I'm going to win. And everyone's going to play Half-Life 2, which here we are. Um, yeah. So, uh, so then he shows Alex. Um, Eli dying, you get to see that scene again. Um, and she's like, oh my God. And he says, yeah, this is going to happen. In seven years of the future, your father's going to die. Not just see that scene again, see that scene with like new graphics, like modern modern day look at like Eli. Yes, like, very updated. And a di- I think a different actor for Eli and of course a different actor for Alex as well. But, you know, basically the same scene in the hangar. He's dead. And so he gives you the power to kill the advisor, which you do. You kind of zap him with your cool gravity gloves that you have in that game and then he he's he's saved so you save eli you basically undo the ending of episode two and then the g-man is like okay cool well now you work for me and he just walks away and and alex is kind of left in this like nether realm outside of space and time just like gordon was at the end of half-life and it just says she's been hired by the g-man and he's like oh well i'll find a use for you you're going to be useful because gordon isn't useful to me anymore so then at the post credits final little stinger is that you are put into back into Gordon's feet and Eli wakes up and Alex is gone and he's like where is she she's gone they've taken her you need to find her and he gives you the the crowbar and then you like are holding the crowbar in your VR hands and it's the coolest goddamn thing ever if you're a huge nerd like me and then the game <laughs> so okay what did you two think you just watched this what did you think of it it looks really cool. It did make me wish I could play a VR game. <laughs> well, the sure. part where the G-Man was like blipping all around and the rebellion mm-hmm. G-Men and he was surrounding you, I was like, I bet this would be really cool in VR. I thought to myself, sadly. <laughs> it definitely was. Uh, it definitely looks good. Um, I mean, it raised a lot of questions. Uh, it does. About, like, uh, so is there an alternate timeline now? Is Half-Life 2 no longer yeah. canon? Are the episodes no longer canon? Mm-hmm. Um, or does that Alex timeline know continue? the whole time what was yeah. going to happen? Yeah. Is is Gordon going to meet another version of Alex who never met him, who's like mm-hmm. 19 and I don't know, like on assignment? Right. That'd be weird. Here's my theory. Um, so I, I do have a theory about this. I think what's so first off, I think that half that ha- there are going to be more Half-Life games. I think Valve is making more Half-Life games and that I'm I mean, maybe anything can happen. Yeah, I mean, they wouldn't do that episode if they didn't know, like, OK, we're doing something next. The only question is whether they'll be in VR or not. Well, so that and so my theory ties in with that. What I think has happened is that 19-year-old... So there's 19-year-old Alex and there's like 27-year-old Alex or whatever, however old she is in Half-Life 2. 19-year-old Alex has been 
put into like a sort of parallel timeline. But I think that there are actually two Alexes now. And it wouldn't surprise me if the one Alex undid the ending to Half-Life 2 and changed the past so they can basically just write a whole new story. And there's going to be a 2D game, like a screen-based game, where you play as Gordon Freeman that will be Half-Life 3. And in that game, Alex has also gone missing, and who knows where that version of Alex is. But also, there's a 19-year-old Alex who has been hired by the G-Man, and she stars in VR games that they also will make. I think there are going to be two different Half-Life games. Because I don't, I would be surprised if all Half-Life becomes VR now. I guess it could happen, and I've seen a lot of people think that. But I don't know. I, I kind of... I think it would be really cool if there were two different worlds and there was a Half-Life 3 that was on screen. So I, I interpret you getting the crowbar in, the, in Alex as like them saying this is like in the next VR game you're going to be smashing with the I think crowbar. that's a fair interpretation. Which is too bad, which bums me yeah, out. Yeah, and that you're going to play Gordon Freeman as opposed to yeah. continuing as Alex on her assignment, Maybe. whatever it may be. There's so much in Half-Life Alex that's like her tools, the gloves she has that are all designed for VR. And nothing in actual Half-Life really works that well with VR. Like it's it's all just kind of specific to Half-Life. I don't know. I kind of I could see them giving you the crowbar and it just being like a fun little thing, but then the next game is on a screen. But I do understand that read of it that they're just implying that it's all VR from here on out. So the other thing is that I think one of the reasons that they made this VR game is because, well, first of all, they always say that like Half-Life is like the intersection of art and technology and we sure. want to have these technology yeah. challenges. But yeah. more practically speaking, Valve had a lot of money invested in their own VR headsets and this is a way to sell VR headsets. Um, if you look at the other hardware they're coming out with, they have the Steam Deck coming this holiday season, which is their handheld Steam machine type mm-hmm. thing. And it's easy to envision them wanting a Half-Life game that plays on that or some some piece of software that plays on that. So yeah. maybe the next Half-Life is on that. Maybe the, the next Half-Life is not VR for that reason. So you can play it maybe. on the Steam Deck. I always I wonder how much Valve cares about making I mean I know they like making money off of everything but like the the thing that really made VR take off wasn't actually Half-Life Alex it was the Oculus Quest 2 and that isn't made by Valve and I would say the best way to play Half-Life Alex is on Facebook's VR device like I wonder how many indexes or whatever that thousand dollar thing is that I think it's the index that Valve makes like how many of that really right, but, sold but regardless it's not necessarily like a practical dream it's more that they're they think of themselves as a hardware slash software company so mm. maybe their whole idea is that like we want to make software that's attached to this hardware but I don't know this is all yeah. speculation I sure, don't know what sure. their plans are next yeah, I'm curious. I really want more of these games. I want, like, it's it's kind of a drag. Like, a thing I noticed in the Discord was that how hard of a time some people had playing Half-Life 2, which hadn't occurred to me just because I've had a gaming PC forever. But it is hard to play the games. Like, they're not on a lot of consoles. And mm. as a result, I think their influence has, like, it's like a second order influence now. Like people are being influenced by games that were influenced by Half-Life, but going back and playing them has really made me think more modern games should be directly taking ideas from these games from 13 years ago and using Mm -hmm. them. And I would hope that if these, this series comes back, there's definitely an institutional knowledge at Valve where they would be drawing ideas from Half-Life and it would kind of bring some of these ideas back up. Like just this style of like, just first-person shooter combat or, like, this mix of puzzles and gameplay, the way they use their tools to, like, kind of delight you as a player. I'd love to see that kind of just come back in a big way and then other people to be like, oh, yeah, this is possible. Like, let's do more of this because I want to play more games like these. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I hope they stick with it. I just assume it'll take another eight years, 12 years. (laughs) I I don't know. I (laughs) We can talk yeah. about it then. Uh, obviously, the show will still be going on, but I just—I don't know. I don't know how. I'm, I'm not going to look forward to it because I'm just assuming it's not going to yeah. happen anytime soon. But it's, it's interesting. It was wise. cool to go back in time and check out check out Half Life. Uh, yeah, cool, cool games in my opinion. Yeah. So it's interesting, Kirk. When I think about before I played these games this year, when I think about like Half Life inspired games, I think about stuff like Stalker, um, or not Stalker, sorry, Metro, the stuff like Metro, mm-hmm. um, or other kind of shooters that are kind of dystopian, sci fi ish, that sort of thing. I guess I always thought of the Half Life influence as being the that that part of it. Yes. Um, 
And then obviously there's the set pieces, which is another big thing, like the Call of Duty kind of branch of the Half-Life influences, the big explosive like things in the background blowing up and mm-hmm. you see them and blah, blah, blah. Um, or you're in firefights with, uh, with soldiers, like that sort of thing. But the one thing that I don't think has been um, like carried on from Half-Life is the physics part of it and the gravity right. gun part of it. And that's sort of mechanic. Like you, you don't see a lot of that in maybe in Titanfall, there's a bit of that, but like, I don't know. I didn't play Titanfall too, but, but, but you don't see a lot of that in like the shooters that are influenced by Half-Life as far as I know. Um, and so one thing that Half-Life could have going for it is that it could be like the, first game in a long time that does all the half-life things including like having this sweet new mechanic that involves physics that can that you can manipulate the world with that is just like unlike any other shooter Mm -hmm. so looking forward to that if it happens yeah yeah me too and i'm sure we'll we'll still be making triple click when the next half-life game comes out and we'll talk about it and we'll do a triple play then yeah. I will just say that I'm I'm very happy that you both played this game. This was really fun for me, and it was fun for me to go back and play it as well. It's just cool to have, I don't know, more shared frames of reference because I really do still love this series, and I still do after playing them, which is kind of a nice thing. So, uh, yeah, thanks to all the listeners who played along with us. Um, this is uh, the end of our bets for this year. My God, what a saga we it's did been. It. That's just it. in time well. to, to do it again. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, just in time to, yeah, to we made it. get into our 2022 uh. bets. Yeah, yeah. Who will win? We're just we're gonna find out in a few short months. <laughs> if you guys are ready for for more JRPGs. Yeah, we'll see. But uh, until then, this was a lot of fun. Thanks again to all of you for being members. And yeah, we'll see both of you soon. See you later. Bye. Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edit and mix the show, and also wrote our theme music. Our show art is by Tom DJ. Some of the games and products we talked about on this episode may have been sent to us for free for review consideration. You can find a link to our ethics policy in the show notes. Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and if you're listening to this bonus episode, it means you're already a member, so thank you. We really appreciate your support. Find us on Twitter at TripleClickPod, send email to TripleClick at MaximumFun.org, and find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.